Well, now, Ian, if I heard you rightly, and I didn't hear very well because I'm deaf, but um, <laughs> if I heard you rightly, you just read a sentence from my chapter of the descent into hell. And I'm very, very glad that you did because of all the chapters that I have written in that book, that is the one that means the most to me and the one that I agonized over the most. But I must josh you a little bit because I did not expect to come to the Virginia Seminary and read the Apostles' Creed and not say he descended into hell. <laughs> What's this? We're getting awfully soft-hearted all of a sudden. <laughs> now look, I have a confession. I have a streak of narcissism. And seeing myself up there is... <laughs> that, in all my 45 years of preaching, I've never had to look at myself. <laughs> Please pray for me that I can keep my eyes down on this level. I'll straighten my tabs now. <laughs> Whew, that is really scary. <laughs> I've been told that this graduating class, like previous graduating classes, uh, votes for the commencement speaker. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as to presume that was a unanimous vote. <laughs> However, I am deeply honored and deeply grateful. I mean that very sincerely. I don't accept a lot of the invitations I get, but this is one of the ones that I would not have missed for anything in the world. But particularly, since I don't know any of you personally, well, I do know one now, because right before the service, I announced that I was not wearing my hearing aids because the acoustics in here are so overwhelming that I can't wear them in this space. So I couldn't hear anything, and I couldn't really hear Erin very well, but I always like to hear my own words quoted, so that was all right. But um, as soon as I finished saying this about being deaf, K.K. Robertson came up to me and said that we shared the same affliction. And I said I was very sorry for her to be so young and have hearing loss. But in any case, it was wonderful to have that bond with a member of the graduating class of 2019. I've given a world of thought these past few weeks to what to say to a class that I don't know. I envy preachers who preach to the same congregation every Sunday, the same people whom you love, baptize, marry, bury, fight with, and love deeply. That's real preaching. Not the kind of preaching I do now, bopping around from one place to another, see the congregation once, never see them again. That is not the way preaching is really done best. And for those of you who will have the opportunity to do that, my warmest good wishes and prayers. Now, I do know you in this regard. Each and every one of you has a vocation. You have pursued that vocation through your years here, through much hard work, no doubt with much, un, 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 no doubt with much questioning and uncertainty, as well as success, 
through the final push to commencement, and now here you are. My privilege is to celebrate your achievement and to join with all the others here today who are proud of your accomplishments. But now, here's a correction to what I just said. I said you have pursued your vocation. That is only secondarily true. What will carry you through whatever lies before you is this primary truth. It is not you who have pursued your vocation. It is your vocation that has pursued you. And in that piece of good news, come hell or high water, in that news that your vocation has pursued you, in that you will find your strength and your salvation. I'm not so good at giving speeches and addresses. My vocation, as it happens, is to be a preacher. So I have a sermon text. My text today, we heard from 1 Corinthians, that great passage from 1 Corinthians. My text today is the so-called second letter to the Corinthians, which of course is actually more than one letter most likely. The epistle, as we have it in Holy Scripture, begins with Paul's impassioned, long salutation to the Christians in Corinth who have been accusing him of being two-faced. So this is the climax of his introductory passage. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we preached among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It is God who establishes us apostles with you in Christ, and has commissioned us. He has put his seal upon us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now that description of apostolic ministry is as good a send-off as I could possibly pass along to you on this momentous day. 2 Corinthians is a neglected letter in the church in spite of the fact that it contains some of the most resonant passages in all of Scripture. It's neglected, I think, partly because it is actually two or three letters pieced together in no clear order, and partly because so much of it is painful to read. I think of it as a letter from a parent to an extremely wayward son or daughter. The Corinthian congregation has given Paul nothing but trouble. You might think he would simply wash his hands of them and just stick with the churches that love him. On the contrary, he seems to recognize that the recalcitrance of the Corinthians is an occasion for the gospel. 
like a doting parent on the verge of losing a child. He will try anything to win them back. He will embarrass himself. He tries first one tack and then another, abandoning one and going to a second one in order to convince them of the authenticity of his message. It's almost as if he senses that his arguments are not sufficient. So he goes from one to another, finally landing upon the right one, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some in the congregation are even saying, Paul is not in his right mind. He is beside himself. You can feel, reading this correspondence, which I commend to you, perhaps tonight, reading this correspondence, how much pain all of this is causing him. At the VTS commencement last year, Barbara Brown Taylor spoke about the conflict that awaits everyone who is in Christian ministry. How true that is. Paul met with intense opposition almost everywhere he went. You can add on Galatians, by the way. But at the same time, this conflict elicits from Paul some of the most powerful passages in all of the New Testament. It is in 2 Corinthians that we find verses like this. What we apostles preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. And this, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that's you and me, earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. And this, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But these glorious affirmations in 2 Corinthians arise out of a very painful setting. Paul writes with deep feeling of the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. I don't think many of us can readily imagine the magnitude of Paul's anxiety. We today are worried about the decline of churches all around us, a situation that no one in the 1950s and 60s, early 60s, could have foreseen. Paul's intense worry about the faithfulness of the churches, however, surely exceeds ours. We recall that Paul's apostolate, although late in the sequence, was nevertheless contemporaneous with that of the Jewish disciples who had followed Jesus during his life on earth. 
God had called Paul to be the apostle of something that had quite literally not existed before. Creation, ex nihilo, the gospel to the Gentiles. Therefore, the specter of the failure of one of Paul's churches would be on an order of magnitude almost unimaginably greater than the failure of an American parish church. I think it's part of, important for us to realize this. The intensity and the passion that Paul exhibits in his letters, especially 2 Corinthians and Galatians, is that of a man who knows that he is on the leading edge of the turn of the ages. The gospel of a new creation in Jesus Christ the Lord. There's a sense in which Paul knows, however, for all his anxiety, that the churches cannot fail because they are founded in the living word of God. Paul knew that word personally. He writes to the Corinthians, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my power is made perfect in thy weakness. But this is tricky, isn't it? If we who are called to ministry make a point of our weakness, then our weakness becomes subtly our ground for boasting. Some of you will remember there was a recent, a recent fashion in the church for the wounded healer. At some point back in the 90s, a leading bishop of our church, in an unguarded moment, actually said in my hearing, I don't want to hear any more about wounded healers. <laughs> he was referring to candidates for ministry who came in for interviews, almost bragging about their fragility and their woundedness as if it would make them more effective. But there is a subtle difference between boasting about weakness in Paul's sense and boasting about it as though it were a good thing in itself, a high qualification for ministry. Along with the idea of the wounded healer, or soon after that, we started hearing a lot about clergy wellness. There are lots of new programs addressing this, probably here, and they seem to be very popular, and not just in religious institutions. They've been cropping up all over the place, occupying a lot of space in lifestyle publications. We hear of beauty and wellness, fitness and wellness, diet and wellness, and so forth. I noticed, however, just a few weeks ago, an article describing wellness initiatives in the business world. And this article reported disappointing results from these programs. Now that started me thinking about what wellness might be. In Paul's sense, in Paul's sense, clergy wellness is the power of God. Powerlessness, powerlessness is bad for human beings. 
I think we can say that across the board. When a person or a group of people feels invisible, voiceless, helpless, and impotent, that in itself is a definition of unwellness. In the context of Christian theology and ethics, the trick is to identify the use of power in Christian ministry and the sort of power that it is. Remembering the Lord saying to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Miroslav Wolf up at Yale has written extensively on power. Here is something from his essay called Theology, Meaning, and Power. He writes, in the Bible, the subject of power figures prominently. We need to pay careful attention to the biblical discourse of power and explore exactly what kind of power Christians should exercise. The answer, I suggest, is neither worldly power on the one hand, nor no power on the other hand, but the power of the crucified Christ. Miroslav Wolf continues, the crucified Christ is not a Messiah without power. He is a Messiah with a new kind of power, the power of what is weak that puts to shame the strong, the power of the things that are not that reduces to nothing the things that are. That's 1 Corinthians, of course. The Christian community, he concludes, draws upon a particular kind of weakness that is a new kind of power inserted into the network of the powers of this world. Now this is closely aligned with Paul writing like this to the Corinthians. Though we live in the world, we are not carrying on a worldly war. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So the power of our vo vocation is a very specific kind of power, emanating from a unique source the power of Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. Christ is speaking through me, Paul writes. He is not weak in dealing with you. God is powerful among you. For to be sure, Christ was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. We apostles are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God. Now the point here is that the apostle and those who are in apostolic ministry, in the apostolic church, we are promised by the grace of God the effective, unconquerable power of the cross and resurrection. We are weak only as Christ is weak, the saving weakness that is ultimate 
power. Now, from where I stand, 45 years since ordination, I can attest that there will be many, many times in your ministry, whether ordained or lay, when you will be beside yourself with frustration, with being misunderstood, with facing what seems to be failure. But these will be precisely the times when you will fall back on the promise of Christ that he will never fail you, that in him it is always yes. His call to you is an apostolic call. The transcendent power belongs to God and not to you. If your vocation, your calling from God is authentic, it will pursue you even when you feel that you are failing. That is the meaning of vocation. Present infinitive, vocare, to call. But who is the subject? If I leave you with anything today, it is this. God is the acting subject. Not me, not you. God is the subject. God is the agent. You and I are the vessels into which the Holy Spirit pours God's purposes. God, in a manner of speaking, is the subject of every sentence in Scripture. Even when God does not seem to be there, he is not only present, but acting. This is the theme of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Nothing about God is ever said outright, not a single thing in the whole very long epic. And yet, God is everywhere, directing the actions of those weak, small ones that he has elected to save Middle-earth. The conclusion of the Lord of the Rings has much to teach us about the human compulsion to seek power, to seek it not from the crucified Lord, but out of our own pridefulness. Many readers of Tolkien's saga miss this point because it comes after the great climax on Mount Doom and it is entirely absent from the movie. Don't even ask me about Game of Thrones. <laughs> in Tolkien's private letters though, in his private letters, which have been collected. He explains why the events after the climax are so central to his plan. When the supposedly victorious hobbit Frodo returns to the Shire, it turns out that he was still under the power of the ring. Long after the victory over the demonic powers of Sauron, Frodo continued his author and creator says, Frodo continued to suffer from a last flicker of pride. He was not content with being a mere instrument of good. He was not content to be solely God's servant with all that implies of his own diminishment. He needed to undergo a cleansing, a truer understanding of his position in littleness and greatness. He was not able to accept himself 
as a mere agent or vessel of providence. I have returned to that passage in Tolkien's letters many times. It seems to me that understanding our position in littleness and greatness is a key to our vocation. This must have been something of a preoccupation among the Inklings because C.S. Lewis, from another point of view, dramatizes the same thing. At the end of Paralandra, the principal character, Ransom, the hero, if you will, is overwhelmed by the magnitude of what has been accomplished in the overthrow of the demonic figure. But the archangel who presides over the triumph speaks to Ransom in these words. Be comforted. It is no doing of yours. You are not great. Be comforted, small one. In your smallness, he lays no merit on you. Receive and be glad. God lays no merit on you. Receive and be glad. I first read that 45 years ago, and it has been a great comfort to me ever since. In the goodness of God, I have received much in these last years of my life. Having suffered a certain amount of disappointment and failure, I can take strength in my smallness by receiving and being glad and understanding my position in littleness before God. There is tremendous strength in this. You know where the merit belongs. Think of this when on some rare occasion you come upon a right one Eucharist with the long prayer of consecration and hear these blessed words, we beseech thee to help this, we, we beseech thee to accept this our bounden duty and service, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. So this is my valediction for the graduating class of 2019. Would you please stand? May you embrace your calling from the Lord who has called you, lay and ordained, to be his servants in the years ahead. The signs of the times are rather dreadful, are they not? The Lord said, I have told you all things ahead of time. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There will be famine and earthquakes. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. It's so good to see that there from the old chapel. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my word will not pass away. The Lord lays no merit on you. Whatever is given to you in these days, you will find strength ready to hand that you did not know you had. And it will be the strength of the living God. Your vocation follows you, and it lies ahead of you. For in Jesus Christ, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has commissioned us. He has put his seal upon you and given you his spirit in your hearts as a guarantee. Let us pray. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, confirm in these graduates your gift of the Spirit to them and your gift of the Spirit to the congregations and among the people to whom they will minister, knowing that the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ has already been won and that his word will never pass away. In his name, Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray. Amen.